It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when I see cases of perpetrators where um, an incident's been reported to police, where it's been recorded, where there's been a a prosecution of some sorts, that is very often the tip of an iceberg um, because there's so much domestic abuse that is never even reported to the police. So, So when somebody does come onto the radar of the criminal justice system, that suggests to me um, that they are uh, the kind of individual who has a pattern of abusive behaviour. You know, this is a course of conduct which has probably been going on for quite some time because that's the thing that that I always find with, with domestic abuse. There's no such thing as an isolated incident because this kind of behaviour draws on a, a particular set of values. Um, it draws on how a perpetrator thinks and feels about women, who women are, how they should behave, what they're there for. And it's that value system that underpins the behaviour. So, so there's no such thing as, as, a, as a one-off. There, there are lots of individuals who I've come across in my line of work um, who've never been convicted of anything, but they're a familiar name to me because the, there's multiple allegations. And when you have quite a, a volume of, of different alleged victims, that's when you know, my, my warning signals start to, start to go off. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance. What's going on, Lance? What is going on, Tim? How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Lance. With uh, everything going on in the world, we are here uh, talking about an important issue that is sort of uh, unknown. It's definitely not been talked about too much lately, but we thought it was important to air it here this week uh, anyway. Yes, this is a topic that we knew, uh, I guess, in the back of our heads existed, but I know personally I didn't think that it existed to this extent. And it takes somebody like Professor Elizabeth Yardley from the Birmingham City University in the UK. She works in the Department of Sociology and Criminology, Business Law, and Social Sciences. Take someone like her to put together a research paper like this. 
to bring it to our attention and bring it to an awareness level that we think it's important to talk about here on The Missing Maura Murray Show. Right. And her paper that she did all this research on is called The Killing of Women in, quote, Sex Games Gone Wrong, unquote, an analysis of femicides in Great Britain from 2000 to 2018. Right. And keep in mind, this is the analysis in Great Britain. So these uh, statistics are not from the United States, but that really is irrelevant. We do know that this does exist in the United States. And if anybody wants to check out Elizabeth Yardley's work, you can check her work out. And if anyone is doing research like this in the States, it would be really interesting to compare the two. So please reach out to us. We want to know more about this. And so this issue relates very closely to domestic violence as well. So we want to give out the domestic violence hotline here in the intro. So for anyone affected by abuse and needing support, call 1-800-799-7233. Or if you're unable to speak safely, you can log on to thehotline.org or text LOVEIS, L-O-V-E-I-S, to one eight six six three three one nine four seven four, And I want to make a note that Elizabeth Yardley worked on this uh, research paper. Uh, she used a lot of Fiona McKenzie's statistics and assistance in identifying the cases and getting some of the anonymous reviews through Fiona McKenzie's organization, We Can't Consent to This. And you can get more information on that at wecantconsenttothis.uk. And Lance, we've been doing these live shows on Get Vocal on Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on Crawl Space. And some of those uh, episodes or some of that audio has ended up on the Crawl Space podcast feed. So you may have heard it if you haven't joined us live. But we are doing one tonight. If you are listening to this one on June 4th, 2020, we are doing one tonight with America's favorite former U.S. Marshal, Art Roderick from Oxygen's The Disappearance of Maura Murray. It's going to be a good time. We did a little test with Art yesterday, and he's got all of his equipment set up. He is uh, going to come to the table with the topic of the Lady of the Dunes from Cape Cod in 1974, from July of 1974. It's close to him. It's close to his family. Not only did Art grow up in the area, but his father was a deputy sheriff from Barnstable County, Uh, And when you're the deputy sheriff of Barnstable County back in the day, you're also the bailiff. You're also the justice of the peace. So the topic of crime and the going ons of the area was a pretty prevalent topic of conversation in the Roderick household back then. So Art's got a lot of information about many things there and specifically the Lady of the Dunes. So if you're listening to this on Thursday, June 4th, please check us out over there on Get Vocal. There is a link in the show notes, and that audio will make it to the Crawl Space podcast feed if you can't make it live tonight. And Lance, on this date, June 4th, 2010, seven-year-old Kyron Richard Horman disappeared after being dropped off at Skyline Elementary School Science Fair by his stepmother in Portland, Oregon. Kyron is 3 foot 8 inches, 50 pounds, with brown hair and blue eyes. He also wears wireframe glasses. He was last seen wearing a black t-shirt with the letters CSI in green and a handprint graphic on it. Black cargo pants, white socks, and black sketcher sneakers with orange trim. Anyone with information should contact the FBI Portland field office at 503-224-4181 or the local tip line at 503-261-2847. And more information on this disappearance you can find at namus.gov slash missing persons slash case number slash 7517. And the True Crime Twins did an episode on Kyron. Check that one out. Many podcasts have as well. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Professor Liz Yardley. You can follow her on Twitter at Prof Liz Yardley. Thank you very much. Listeners probably recognize your voice as uh, Professor Elizabeth Yardley. A superhero from uh, Birmingham City University in the UK. Oh, I'll have that. I'll stick that on my Twitter profile. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Liz, welcome back. We we love having you on. You you make us smarter every time we hear you. And uh, and I think the audience really appreciates hearing from you and your point of view as well. 
Now, there's nothing like a bit of criminology to, to try and make sense of the, the incredibly bizarre um, or what appears to be bizarre. Uh, very often right. these things have, have very clear patterns to them and, and it's actually a lot more, more simple than it first appears. You work out of the Department of Sociology and Criminology in, uh, in Birmingham City University. That's correct? That's right, yes. We're having you on and we've spoken to you offline as well. Everything that we've done, even with uh, Maura Murray's case and with the other show, Crawl Space, any case that we've worked on, there's always some element of that case, whether it's directly related to a victim or it's sort of on the peripheral of the victim's life. You have something that you've done as far as like maybe an, anal- an analysis or uh, research. A brilliant on. research paper. Yeah, pretty much everything that we've worked on, you have some contribution in, in our research. And it's no uh, exception here, our conversation today. Yeah, and I think this this issue of, of domestic abuse, domestic violence, it's something that permeates you know so many layers and strata of our society. And you'll find it in the background, I think, of pretty much any criminal or deviant behavior that you come across, because you're fundamentally looking at the, the nature of relationships between individuals. You're looking at the kind of gendered expectations of, of who people are and, and how they should behave. And that underpins so much stuff in our everyday lives. Gendered expectations. That's pretty incredible. Gendered expectations. So I'm assuming that you mean what's expected of both men and women in a, in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we, we look at, at gendered expectations, we're, we're basically saying that men and women's experiences of different things in life are going to vary based on their gender because we have uh, various values, various expectations, various kind of norms and behaviors that we associate with masculinity and that we associate with femininity. And in the field that I look at, uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence, um, I, I often see very kind of, shall we say, traditional or patriarchal views of, of who women are and how they should behave um, and that, that women are supposed to be the carers and the, the nurturers and they should be the subservient ones. And it's a really interesting time to be looking at this kind of thing because since the 1970s and second wave feminism, women have come a long way in terms of our formal equality, in terms of um, sex discrimination, equal pay, all of those types of things. And that's great. But what's written down as legislation in black and white really doesn't translate to people's experiences on the ground. Um, there is still an awful lot of misogyny, an awful lot of inequality. So we're, we're constantly coping with this idea that actually, all you women, you've got equality, you're fine, you haven't got anything to worry about. But what I see in my daily life um, really does contradict that. Right. And you've written a new research paper that, uh, that is quite compelling. And uh, it's called The Killing of Women in Sex Games Gone Wrong, an analysis of femicides in Great Britain from 2000 to 2018. That's right, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about this uh, research and, and the paper? Yeah, well, I came across a case, a case that was local to me. Um, it was in the Birmingham area in England of uh, a lady called Natalie Connolly, who was killed by her partner. Um, and her partner claimed that she died in, in a sex game gone wrong um, and that she'd consented um, to have various things done to her. Um, and, and this young woman, she had over 40 injuries. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail because they were horrendous. Um, but her partner, um, he went on trial for her murder at Birmingham Crown Court. But partway through the trial, he pled guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. And that, that plea was accepted. And he received three years and eight months, um, a, a sentence for, for, for manslaughter rather than murder. And that really kind of put this, this sex game gone wrong topic on my radar because I wanted to see, well, how many other cases are there like this where we have a conviction? Um, and what, what can we see in these cases? Are there any common patterns? Are there any common trends? And nobody had actually done 
an academic analysis of this is a fantastic organization in Britain called We Can't Consent to This. And they essentially document cases of women killed in, in sex games gone wrong. Um, but they are a, an independent um, organization. They're not a university. Um, but they had basically put together a repository of, of cases um, on their website and they held in the background a database as well. Um, so that aside, there'd been no research done on this. So I decided to, to dive in and have a look at what these cases look like. And you worked with uh, Fiona McKenzie, who is, is she the founder of We Can't Consent to This? Yeah, so she she runs that organization and she very kindly gave me access to their database of cases, um, basically identifying what, what cases there had been in, in Britain, whether there'd been a conviction, whether there hadn't been a conviction. So that was a really valuable place for, for me to start. So I noted down names of cases from that database and then I, I set about doing my own research um, to fill in some details. Um, so so some, some more kind of information about the relationship between the, the victim and the perpetrator, um, the kind of sentence the perpetrator received, the location of the homicide, all of those those types of, of details. Not to deviate too much into this, but People can check out their work at We Can't Consent to This. It's all one word, dot UK. And it's such a powerful website. You can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll on this website. And it's lists of names that young women uh, or women of all ages murdered by their partners in a sex game gone wrong. You just it, you could scroll for forever. It's, it's incredible. Can you explain what a sex game gone wrong is? Well, this is emerging as a defense that perpetrators have started using, specifically in, in recent years. It's something that's always been there, um, but it seems to have accelerated in recent years. So this is where uh, a man stands accused of, of killing his intimate partner or ex-partner. And he basically says, um, I didn't intend to kill her. This was this was a sex game gone wrong um, because you know, this woman is into to rough sex. She asked me to do this and it went too far um, and I didn't intend to kill her. And it's quite interesting, the timing of this, because in uh, England and Wales, we used to have a defence called the provocation defence. And it was known as the nagging and shagging defence. So this was when uh, men would basically say, well, my, my partner nagged me and nagged me and nagged me and I lost control or my partner cheated on me. And, and men would legitimately use these as defences when they were on trial for, for murder. But that was outlawed in, um, in the Coroner's and Justice Act of 2009. So the, I think this sex game gone wrong defence has kind of emerged in that space as a way of, of men who abuse their partners to, to basically try and get off. Um, in cases where they kill them. And I think it's important to say that my research looked at cases where there'd been a conviction. So these were cases that had gone through the criminal justice process and the, the defendant had been found guilty. Um, and I think, to be honest, that is, that's just the tip of an iceberg because there will be plenty of perpetrators who won't have been charged in the first place because the police will have believed their version of events. Um, or they, they were charged, there was a prosecution, but they were found not guilty. Um, so it's, it's a really, really concerning thing. Right. From the uh, the women, how many how many women were killed in this in this time period? Um, yeah, forty three. So forty three women, and there were forty one perpetrators because there were a couple of perpetrators who killed more than one person. So yeah, that that number forty three. I mean, it, it doesn't sound massive because when you think about the number of homicides in in Great Britain every year, you know, it's it's in the hundreds. You know, six, seven, eight hundred. Um, so 43 in a 20-year time period doesn't seem like that many. But I think what's behind these these homicides is something that we really need to get a grip on because I can, can see this only getting worse. Yeah. I mean, 43 doesn't sound like a big number, but we're not talking about when you sort of triangulate what that number represents, then that is sort of uh, a very big number because you're talking about 43 individual cases that use this defense and I, I would say on, on some level get away with it, right? 
Yeah, I think I think even when you have a conviction, you look at the the kind of outcomes that the perpetrators get in terms of the length of their sentence, um, the actual nature of the conviction, whether it's for murder or for manslaughter. Um, there are a, a lot of them who have have got off fairly lightly, actually, um, for what I believe to be you know premeditated planned homicides. So it's um it's really worrying stuff. You use the term uh, femicide. What's a different? What? What? Where, how does that term come into play? So the term femicide is um, a term that is used by a lot of, of, of feminists, a lot of feminist criminologists, to basically draw attention to cases where women are killed by men. Um, because when we're looking at those cases specifically, um, there is something quite unique about them. Um, when we compare them to homicides in general, because homicide is, it's like a male dominated crime. Um, Men make up the majority of perpetrators in most cases, and they make up the majority of victims. Um, So when you do get cases where women are the victims, we need to look closely at those and look carefully at them. And the term femicide emerged as a way of saying, actually, we need to look at the context of, of these killings, because when we look in the background, what we see is misogyny. Um, we see quite kind of patriarchal, quite traditional gendered belief systems. So it is a very unique form of homicide. And you wrote here in, the, in your paper that femicide is typically not a loss of control, but an attempt to maintain control. Absolutely. Um, And there's been some really good work done by Dr. Jane Monkton-Smith from the University of Gloucestershire. And she's talked about there being two main ways of making sense of femicide. So the first one is the crime of passion discourse. And this, this, and we'll all be familiar with this. This is where a man kills his partner. And the way that we make sense of it is to say, well, he just lost control. He just snapped He just saw red mist and he wasn't in control of what he was doing. The alternative way of looking at it is the coercive control discourse. And that says, actually, this crime of passion thing is nonsense. Because these these femicides, they, they don't come out of the blue. Perpetrators don't just wake up one day and decide to kill their partners. This is often the culmination of many, many years of coercive and controlling and abusive behavior. So those are those two different ways of, of making sense of it. And I think it's really important. I think the fact that you mentioned that word control, because that is the key word for me when we look at domestic abuse, when we look at domestic homicide, it's all about one individual having power and control over another. And that is what perpetrators want in these these situations. They want to completely control their victim. And many perpetrators in domestic abuse cases, they will never resort to physical violence. They will never resort to homicide because they don't have to. They're able to control their victim by other means. Um, They're able to, to psychologically and emotionally and financially manipulate them. So this really does emphasize, you know, the importance of, of control. And you don't necessarily have to have physical violence to get control. What, what is coercive control? So coercive control, um, it's an actual crime in England and Wales, and it was, was criminalized in 2015. And what coercive control is, it's, it's what I call a liberty crime and what a lot of other academics call a liberty crime. So it's about depriving somebody else of their freedom and of their independence. And perpetrators go about this in a a range of different ways. And some of the tactics that they use will include things like isolation. So they will isolate their victim from their friends and their family. Uh, They will make their victim wholly dependent upon them. Um, They will gradually kind of take control of various elements of, of the victim's life. And this is something, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a kind of drip, drip, drip process. And when it begins, perpetrators will be very charming. They will be very kind of loving. They'll appear as these kind of knights in shining armor, these perfect partners. Um, And you'll find that the relationships that they enter into often happen at a very accelerated pace. So they'll move in together very quickly. They'll be kind of all over social media 
um, you know, announcing their, their partnership very quickly. And, and once they have that person under their control, that's when, when some of those, those kind of nastier elements of their personality come across. So coercive control is, I mean, it can include physical violence. Um, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be there. Um, and there's been some really interesting work done by a guy called Professor Evan Stark. And he says that actually, when we look at domestic homicide, the highest risk factor for it isn't physical violence, it's coercive control. Um, so it's it's a really, really interesting concept. But unfortunately, it's one that's taking quite a while to, to catch on. I think if you mention coercive control to most people, they're not quite sure what it actually means. Whereas if you, you talk about domestic violence, they they kind of have a picture in their mind of what that might look like. Do you have any examples of someone in a relationship where they're experiencing uh, this coercive control and they attempt to flee the situation? Maybe a, a woman running away from her husband or her boyfriend because he's exhibiting uh, these signs and, and is practicing this coercive control? Yeah, so um, there's a really great piece of research, um, again, by uh, Jane Monkton-Smith, and she's talked about a domestic homicide timeline. And she says that that actually the highest risk factor for domestic homicide, um, the, the time when, when that will become very much a possibility, is when the perpetrator feels that they're, they're losing control over their victim. And one of the things that might cause that feeling of a loss of control is if the victim withdraws their commitment to the relationship. So if the victim is planning to leave, if they share with the perpetrator an intention to end the relationship, or if the perpetrator thinks that the victim is going to leave him, because that represents the perpetrator's loss of control of of that victim. And very often following that, there'll be a kind of escalation in the perpetrator's behavior. They'll try and reestablish that control. So they might cry, they might beg, they might threaten the victim. And then when it becomes clear to the perpetrator that, that actually they're not getting this relationship back, they have lost control of their victim. Their victim is now going to go off and become an autonomous, independent individual. They, they change their thinking. And there's um, two very well-known researchers in the domestic violence area, Dobash and Dobash, have termed this changing the project. So what happens here is that perpetrators, rather than trying to control their victim by keeping them in a relationship, switch to trying to control them by destroying the victim for leaving the relationship. So this is where they start planning a homicide and they'll create opportunities to kill. Um, they'll, they'll think about how they're going to conceal a body. They might put together some kind of killing kit. Um, and then the next stage after that is, is the actual homicide itself. And I think what's really important about, about that research in terms of the domestic homicide timeline is the planned nature of these homicides. These aren't guys who just snap, who just lose it. Um, they, they get to a point where they feel they've lost control over their victim and they decide that the only way to regain that control is by killing them. So the origin of all of this is essentially control. Absolutely. Where does that fall in the uh, spectrum of psychosis? Well, it's an interesting question because I think when we look at the nature of the society that we live in, we live in a, a neoliberal consumer capitalist society. And when we look at some of the values and, and, and some of the, the actual nature of our existence now, it's quite anxious. It's quite precarious. We have much less certainty over our lives than our parents or our grandparents' generation did. So I think all of us, to some extent, feel not particularly in control of our fates. And I think there's this spectrum um, along which people are are kind of located in terms of that. So I think in in general, um, people's need to be in, in control is a really interesting question because of the, the nature of the times in, in which we're living. But looking at the, the cases that, that I've worked on, some of the perpetrators that I've come across, the origins of that need to be in control are really, really interesting for me um, because in pretty much all of the cases that I've looked at, of domestic homicide, perpetrators have experienced some sort of lack of control over their lives 
at some previous point in their lives. Normally, during their childhood, their adolescence, they haven't felt in control of their lives. They felt that somebody else is is in control. Um, they felt that they can't rely on on other people, that they're on their own. They develop quite a kind of defensive outlook on life. So for me, on the whole, um, a lack of control in early early childhood and adolescence can translate into a very intense need to be in control during adulthood. And that will manifest itself in in different ways. So some people will internalize and they will try and maintain control by controlling um, themselves. So you you might find um, kind of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, getting into kind of problematic relationships, that kind of thing. In other people, they will externalize. So they will try and gain control by controlling other people. And, and you, you might find there some of this coercively controlling, abusive, violent behavior. So it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating area because I think we need to be quite careful at the same time, though, because not everybody who's had adverse experiences in childhood, not everybody who's experienced abuse or neglect will go on to harm other people. Very, very few of those people will. But judging by what I've seen, Pretty much all of the perpetrators that I've worked with um, who've, who've committed homicide have experienced that kind of origin. That is their kind of backstory. So I think we do need to, to look really closely at, at where people come from. Um, what, what was their family life like? What was their community like? Why is this need to be in control such an important thing to them? So are you essentially saying that someone with controlling parents as you're growing up, they don't, as this person's growing up and they have incredibly controlling parents, they don't really realize what that's doing to them. And, and you're, you're saying essentially that is creating a need in them to control others because they didn't have that control in their uh, childhood. Yeah, I think when you look at individuals who were kind of denied that that responsibility, that opportunity to build their own independence, um, the people who've been very much kind of mollycoddled and and somebody else has been completely in control of everything um, in their lives, um, I, I think that there will come a point where they actually want to take some control for themselves. Um, and, and, and yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a really interesting, interesting point. You will get like a variety of different situations in people's childhoods. You'll get, um, people who were completely neglected, um, people who were, were abused, um, who had horrendous backgrounds. And then you will have individuals where actually from the outside, everything seemed to be okay, but the parents were incredibly sort of overbearing, very, very controlling, um, and and I think that is is something that we need to look more at uh, as criminologists. I looked at um, some cases for a television series a few years ago called Murderers and Their Mothers, which screened on CBS Reality, and we we came across very very different types of kind of parenting in the the killers that we looked at. And these kind of uber mothers, as we term them, uber parents who were very over the top, very domineering, um, don't necessarily appear to be sort of abusive. Um, and they will very often manifest in sort of middle class households, which are not subject to the same degree of state surveillance as, as poorer households. So they will kind of, you know, flip under under the radar. Um, so it's it's really important to look at that whole spectrum of control. Do you ever see any uh, correlation or any examples of people exhibiting these uh, qualities of control, uh, coercive control, um, being involved with the military at all? Because when you were talking about them not having control as a youth and, and being raised in an environment that really um, is overbearing, uh, is is a military career common for somebody because they're able to function in a structured environment and perhaps uh, rise up the ranks and then have control themselves over their, you know, subordinates? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting observation because when you look at the nature of military life, it is very controlled. It's very kind of prescriptive. Um, so it mirrors that very structured childhood 
but it does so in a way that affords people a little bit of independence. You know, they are in control largely of their destiny in the forces, and and it's it's very it's very clear what you need to do to be promoted to the next rank or, or the next level. But I'd say another really interesting thing about the military, when you look at the nature of that culture, it is it's traditionally um, quite a, a sort of male-dominated, quite patriarchal culture. It embodies what we would call hegemonic masculinity, this idea that to be a man, you need to be tough and, and physically resilient and strong and, and not take any nonsense. Um, so I think those two things together really are quite interesting. And there's, there's a few cases um, that I've come across um, looking at, at domestic homicides, looking at family annihilations, um, where you have a perpetrator who kills his partner and his children and then sometimes himself. Um, there's quite a few of those cases where the perpetrators have sort of military or, or police backgrounds who come from those very kind of prescribed career structures. So it's an interesting question. You you mentioned in your paper about BDSM, and I just wanted to ask about that and, and what that is. Chains, whips, that's uh, choking. What is that? It, it's a whole spectrum of, of behaviors where somebody, you know, either takes control of somebody else or gives control to somebody else. So it is a very kind of broad church, um, as you call it. So I think one of the important things to emphasize, though, is that there, there are a lot of people who engage in, in this kind of sexual activity, and very few of them are going to be um, you know, abusive or violent or, or controlling in, in the way that we, we think about domestic abuse and, and domestic violence. There are lots of people consensually participating in this activity, and that's absolutely fine. I think most people will have heard of the film Fifty Shades of Grey, and there has been a bit of a kind of a cultural phenomenon around this. And a lot, there's an awful lot of pornography, an awful lot of women's magazines are now kind of presenting, you know, bondage, domination, sadomasochism as a sort of a, a normal sexual practice. And you're almost considered, you know, a bit prudish if you haven't engaged in this kind of activity. And it's being presented as this kind of norm that people, you know, should be engaging in, you know, you're, you're leading a boring life if you're not kind of thing. Um, but I think what this actually provides, especially for perpetrators of abuse and homicide, is a really convenient cover story for, for planned killings. So I think we, we need to be really, really careful about this because there is this kind of cultural normalization of it. And I think it's a difficult one because there's a lot of, of people who say, well, this is great. You know, women are able to, to have whatever kind of sex they want now. Isn't that a fantastic thing? Well, well, yes, it is. But, but it's not when perpetrators are able to use this narrative to actually justify violence against women. So it's, it's a really tricky one, a really interesting one, and, and one that we should be looking at more than we are in criminology. I think when it becomes a problem, is when people who are abusive and violent and controlling basically appropriate this, this kind of cultural phenomenon and, and use it as a way to, to justify and excuse violence. Yes, you're saying they might bring it up. Because in your paper, it says that homicide risk is greatly increased for women who have experienced non-fatal strangulation at the hands of their abusers. Yeah, yeah. This is, is something that, that comes up in so many cases. And if you think about what strangulation is, it's basically you're, you're in front of another person. You can, you can see that, their face. Um, well, what you're doing when you're strangling them is saying, I can kill you if I wanted to. So it's something that comes up frequently in cases of, of domestic abuse. And women who are strangled by their partners um, and they survive that attempt, they are, their, their likelihood of then going on to being killed by those same men, it increases significantly. Um, so, so this is one thing that, that I'm really concerned about, actually, is the normalization of this particular act itself. Um, especially through the kind of BDSM narratives about this being something that is is mainstream or is is normal, um, it's actually highly dangerous. Um, and and there's there's lots of research that says there is no safe way to actually practice this. 
Um, so we've got this overlap between what's being kind of culturally normalized and what we know is incredibly dangerous and, and a red flag in terms of domestic abuse and homicide. So there is a uh, direct relationship between what is made, what's created uh, in the form of pornography and this. Uh, there has to be the influence between the two, right? Or the influence of that um, genre of pornography, right? Yeah. And I'm very concerned about the younger generation, you know, people in their late teens, 20s, because they've been growing up um, in an era where, where this has been presented as normal. And that was um, something that, that came out in my research. I mean, the sample size was very small, but the second most common uh, perpetrator age groups were victims age 16 to 24 with perpetrators age 16 to 24. So I think this is something that is, is particularly relevant uh, when we look at young people's experiences. So we need to be really, really careful in terms of, of what we're, we're telling young people about what's normal. So when these situations are brought to trial, there's often a, a, a shaming of the female. Is that something that concerns you as well? And how do you, I guess, try to combat that as, as someone who's on the other side, you know, with with the victim or the victim's families. Yeah, this is this is something that that is is really quite depressing um, because one of the key things that happens when you have a domestic homicide and a woman is killed by her partner is that in killing her he silenced her. So the only narrative that that tends to to come across that tends to dominate is the perpetrator's narrative. And I've been really concerned um, in some of the cases that, that I've looked at that the perpetrator's narrative really isn't questioned to the degree that it should be. They are literally taking his word for it that this couple engaged in this kind of sexual activity that the victim asked for, for this to be done to her. So this kind of silencing of, of victims is is terrible. And when we look at victim blaming, this is something that's been happening for, for years, especially when we, we look at um, sexual assault, when we look at rape, when we look at that kind of thing. And victims are still blamed for their own victimization. I mean, we only need to look at how the media treated some of the, the victims in the, the Harvey Weinstein case, some of the victims related to Jeffrey Epstein, um, these women had their names really dragged through the mud and and their kind of histories really were kind of analysed and scrutinised to a degree that was was really not appropriate. So this is, is something that, that, that we've always had. But I think it's particularly prominent now um, when we look at the society in which we live. Um, we're, we're a neoliberal society. Um, we tend to basically hold people responsible for their own victimization because we see this as their failure to protect themselves from victimization. We've all become kind of responsibilized. Um, so that's that's something that then adds to these these existing kind of gendered um, factors that that makes victim blaming worse. And there's so many myths around domestic abuse, around domestic homicide. Um, and and too often we hold women responsible for their own victimization. What are, what are your thoughts on the perpetrator then, and you kind of touched on it a little bit there, what are your thoughts on the perpetrator then uh, controlling the narrative of the story in the public, on social media, uh, and, and also involving other people in that controlling of the narrative, maybe as a uh, another form of... Uh, control uh, this course of control uh, and and using individuals to give their side of things and and control a narrative that really isn't the reality oh absolutely this is this is so relevant and and I think it's it's the number one rule isn't it really of of psychology and of domestic abuse in general is the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior so if somebody is completely fixated on being in control that's not going to change um, and it, it won't change after a homicide either because the control doesn't end with the homicide the control will go on forever and it's very important that the, the perpetrator feels in control of, of the victim still by dominating the narrative around the homicide. And I've looked at, at several cases of this where perpetrators have used social media 
um, to basically get across their side of the narrative. And very often what that will involve is trying to claim the victim status for themselves. So you get what um, what Laura Richards has, has termed poor me syndrome, PMS. I love that acronym. Um, <laughs> yeah. But basically, they're, they're saying, I'm the victim here. I'm terribly hard done by. Look at the awful impact that this has had on my life. And I think that's incredibly revealing because it doesn't convey any empathy um, for the victim or the alleged victim. It doesn't show any kind of, of remorse or, or feeling bad or guilty um, for, for what they've, they've done. Um, but that is something that, that perpetrators have done for, for a long time. And I think it's, it's even more accessible to them now because they have a direct line, don't they, to audiences through social media. You know, they can get on any of the social media platforms and start, you know, spouting their narrative. Whereas in years gone by, you relied on, on newspaper editors and journalists telling your story for you. Right. And, um, and, and back to court, when this is used as a defense, a lot of times the past behavior is inadmissible. Is that, is that correct? And uh, you feel maybe, maybe there's some uh, judicial ignorance there? Yeah, so um, quite a few of the cases that I've looked at, um, the, the history of um, the, the perpetrator is it's not it's not told in in an accurate way um especially if the the previous behavior hasn't been kind of recorded and reported and prosecuted very often in in cases of of domestic abuse and and violence there isn't a report to the police there isn't a prosecution it's basically allegations that are made by former partners that are made by by women that the the perpetrator has had some kind of interaction with um but all of those stories i think are, are so important and this is the the ongoing issue that we have in terms of what has validity in a court of law versus what has validity you know as as a criminologist i mean i look at patterns of behavior and courses of conduct and not all of that behavior will be recognized as criminal or or labeled as criminal but it's all significant yeah we were uh, working on a case uh, sheila shepherd who was murdered in in her bed uh, she was tied naked um spread eagle and she had uh, a knife like a kitchen knife in her stomach post-mortem and as you're saying all of these things I can't help but think that the perpetrator in her case knew her and he this person hasn't been caught yet but it's just all, all the things you're saying just ring true to so many of these uh, cases that we look into yeah yeah, I mean, what what first appears to be, um, you know, academic research that perhaps a little bit kind of off the wall and specialist is something that that actually applies quite widely, um, especially when we look at cases of, of femicide. This is this is very often in the background um, for for many of them. Yeah, and and what is the most common um, way of death uh, in the cases that use this defence? Um, so overwhelmingly, it was strangulation. So when we looked at the the actual method that the perpetrators used, strangulation was kind of the the most significant one. And strangulation itself is it is an in, inherently gendered method of homicide. So in in England and Wales, where where I live, the most common method for for men and women when they're killed is a, a knife or a sharp instrument. But when you look at the second most common method, for men, it's hitting and kicking. So, you know, you think about the kind of confrontational male-on-male homicide there. But for women, the second most common method is is strangulation. Um, And when you look at some of the the stats around this, I'm just finding them here in in my paper. So when we look at all victims who died from from strangulation in the, the most recent year that we got stats for, three quarters of them were women. And only one quarter were men. And and that really just speak volumes for me because men are generally overrepresented as, as homicide victims, but women are overrepresented as victims where the method is is strangulation. So so this is this is an inherently gendered topic. 
Um, and, yeah. and I don't think criminology has really woken up to that to the extent that it needs to. Yeah. And, and your research, it, it is still a small sample size, but like, as we we're kind of saying, it is widely, much more widely adaptable than the small sample size would suggest. And I think the, the research in this area, or the lack of it, really does speak volumes about how important the state, the government, consider this to be. So the fact that I couldn't go to the Home Office and find a publicly available repository um, of, of cases or information about cases, the fact that it was down to an independent organization like We Can't Consent to This to collect this data about these victims really does speak to the, the status of this kind of homicide. Um, it, it says to me, the state doesn't really care um, about domestic abuse, domestic violence and domestic homicide. Um, and in this country at the moment, we have the domestic abuse bill going through Parliament, which is great. You know, it's progress, um, but I don't think it goes far enough. And I think domestic abuse has always been one of those kind of poor relation crimes. Um, it, there's been the tendency um, within policing cultures to refer to just a domestic so this isn't as significant or as important as other crimes. So the very fact that, that criminologists are having to do this kind of research, the fact that this doesn't already exist, really does tell us quite a lot about it. Yeah, and your research, you write here that it supports the claims that the sex games gone wrong defense is on the rise and it's becoming more prominent in uh, criminal proceedings. And you also state that 2018 saw the highest number of convictions. So is that the highest number of incidents that have been reported as well? Um, so this is this is probably going to be the next phase of my research. It will be looking at cases where um, there has been a prosecution but not a conviction. So um, the paper that I, I did focused on where perpetrators have been convicted. And that that's on, on the increase. Um, but... The most recent year, 2018, was the, the one where I saw the highest number of convictions. And I think, actually, it's it's the tip of the iceberg. We're probably going to see even more cases where there haven't been a conviction. And I think one of the interesting things for me was when I looked at the, the backgrounds of the perpetrators, um, I looked at the occupations um, to give me some kind of indication as to kind of social class, social status. And men who were unemployed were overrepresented in my sample. And what that says to me is that these are the guys who've been convicted. So these are the guys who weren't able to articulate this sex game gone wrong defense very well. The, the jury didn't buy it, basically. But what might be happening if we look at other socio-demographic groups, if we look at middle-class men, upper-middle-class men, men from kind of wealthier backgrounds, could it be that they're not killing their partners in this way? Well, maybe. I think perhaps more likely is that they are and they're getting away with it. So that's another thing that, that I think we need to, to look at here is, is actually we have this, this defense that's being used. And I think there will be some groups of men who are going to be much more able to spin a very convincing story than others. And that's when we're going to find out some really interesting stuff is when we look at the cases where there haven't been a conviction. Yeah. And you mentioned um, employment uh, background or, or what they do for a living. Um, what about for the victims? What were the typical occupations for the victims? So um, the largest number of victims fell into the, the kind of caring uh, leisure and service industry group. And, and this is things like care assistants, teaching assistants, Basically, the kind of occupations where you you care for others, where you have empathy, uh, where you want to make a difference in people's lives. And this was really interesting for me because those kind of characteristics are exactly the kind of characteristics that perpetrators of domestic abuse and coercive control will prey on. Um, they will go for victims who are more likely to be empathetic towards people, who are more likely to perhaps be open and let people into their lives. Um, so that was that was really, really interesting for me. Is there a situation that you found where a perpetrator claims that the victim asked for the or, or initiated the act? Oh, there were quite a lot of cases um, in my research where the perpetrators were claiming that victims had actually asked 
um, for, for these acts to be done to them. Um, because that's that's a very, very convincing way of basically saying this wasn't my fault. You know, I'm the victim here. She told me to do this. And, and then, you know, she just died. It was a terrible accident. Um, so I found that in quite a few cases. So when the perpetrators claim that the victim had initiated or asked them to perform the specific act that led to their death, um, over half of, of the cases, so uh, 59% of the cases, they said this is what had happened. And very often that claim is much more effective where there is a relationship between the victim and the perpetrator, um, where they're, they're in a, an intimate partnership, where they're, they're married, where they're living together. Um, and those right. are the cases where I tended to find that happen more often. And I just, I was just really, really bothered by the fact there was very little challenge to these claims in court, that the perpetrator's word is, is literally just, just taken. And there's the assumption that, oh, well, you know, of course he's telling the truth. Because it's, it's just uh, his word against someone who no longer has a voice in the matter, unless there's some sort of video evidence like they made a sex tape or something. Yeah, it is is that dominance of the perpetrator's narrative again, isn't it? And the the silencing of the victim and and that's why I'm so kind of passionate about this research because these women can't speak for themselves anymore. So I think it's it's down to to people like me as as academics and and brilliant organizations like we can't consent to this to continue shouting about this and saying this is a real problem. We need to be aware of it and we need to be doing something about it. Yeah. And now um, Parliament's trying to ban this defense in uh, the UK, right? Yeah. So the domestic abuse bill, which is currently going through Parliament, um, some MPs and some campaign groups are working very hard to try and get um, um, an amendment to that bill that outlaws this defense. Whether they will, I don't know. Um, I, I can't see any reason why, why, why that would be resisted. Um, but I think, again, domestic abuse is, is the poor relation. Um, when we have um, a, a global health pandemic, um, it gets kind of brushed to the side, even though mm. it's, it, it's something that has increased under, under COVID-19. So it, it is one of those right. things that, that campaigners and academics were always fighting to keep this on the policy agenda. But it's very easy for it to just get flicked off to the side and and we need to make sure that that doesn't carry on happening and uh one thing i found particularly disturbing and you kind of mentioned it a moment ago was that uh the length of the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim is actually directly usually related to the length of sentencing yeah this this was something that that i suspected might be the case and and as i collected um data on on the cases it started to kind of bear out statistically. Um, so what, what's come out of this is that, that men who murder women that they are in relationships with, where, where it is a partner case, they tend to be receiving sentences that are shorter than other types of victim-perpetrator relationships. So just looking at some of the average sentences, when when we're looking at, at sentences for, for murder, so the partner relationship is associated with, with shorter sentences than, for example, people who have just met or, or people who are kind of on a on a first date. In terms of the average sentence um, for men who murdered their their partners, the mean was 15.7 years. So um, a man murders his intimate partner, claims it's a sex game gone wrong. He's convicted of murder. The average sentence is 15.7 years. When we look at ex-partner cases, that average sentence goes up a little bit to 19.2 years. And then when we look at just met cases, so, so cases where the victim and the perpetrator had literally just encountered each other, um, the average sentence length there was 27.3 years. So you can see that actually where there is a, an established and a current relationship between victim and perpetrator, the sentence for murder is much lower um, than if there isn't that established relationship or that relationship has come to an end. So we're basically saying that women who are killed by men that they are in intimate relationships with, their lives are worth less 
than women who have different types of relationships with their perpetrators. So, so that was something I was expecting to find. Um, so I wasn't particularly surprised by it, but but I am horrified by it at the same time. It, it is it is horrifying because essentially what they're saying is, if it was that bad, she would have left. Oh yes. Oh God, I still hear that which, every day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, which we already covered, you know. In yes. This. Exactly. Yeah, so that's. It's pretty absurd. And and I, I'm happy to shout this from the rooftops, Liz, all your research. And please keep us updated um, wherever it goes. Because I think if someone's found not guilty of this, I mean, what would that do to them if they're found not guilty? Well, if somebody is, is charged um, in relation to a, an incident like this and they're found not guilty, well, it, that then says to them, well, there are no consequences for your behavior it gives them the green light to carry on behaving in in the way that they have been and if anything it might make them more careful um they might have learned something from the process of a prosecution in terms of what they need to do in the future to make sure that they don't come onto the radar of the criminal justice system because one thing i've learned about perpetrators of domestic abuse is they get smarter they get they get cleverer the more experience they have of, of the criminal justice system, the more brushes they, they have with them, the more that they learn and, and they become incredibly sophisticated perpetrators. They become very, very manipulative and, and very cunning and incredibly dangerous. And your research is just taken from um, statistics that exist. There's probably a number that is astronomical where victims are a part of this and they haven't been killed yet, but they're still in the relationship and their partner continues to perform these acts on them. And it's just a matter of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and given that there's a really, there's a dark figure um, of, of domestic abuse that's never reported to the police, that, that never comes onto the radar, um, what can very often happen in cases where a perpetrator doesn't have a kind of documented recorded history of, of charges or of convictions is that when they do kill their partners, they're much more able to draw on that crime of passion discourse, that idea of I just snapped, I just lost it. And unfortunately, because our understandings of domestic abuse um, as a society are not where they should be, they're highly, highly likely to, to get away with that and to have people believe it. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.